0: Hi everyone and welcome to Dark as Hell. I'm your host Maggie. There's something that always feels particularly chilling when it comes to disappearances. Particularly recent ones. Ones that happen in this day and age of technological advancements that create almost endless and eerily easy ways to keep tabs on or track someone's movements. Take Flight MH370, for instance, that Malaysian air flight that, for all appearances, took to the sky one day and was just never seen again. The constant question with that particular case, of course, is how the hell do you lose an entire plane full of people without so much as even an inkling about where it might have gone or might have landed might someday be found? We have all of the resources in the world to identify, to find, to follow individuals and things. And yet, somehow, people simply vanish. Seemingly erased from this world so wholly, it almost makes you question your sanity. Because, I mean, how does a plane just go missing? Now... This isn't a story about flight MH370, but it does have ties to the same idea at the heart of it. The idea that you could just disappear, never to be found, never to be seen again, it seems to strike fear into the heart of our deepest anxieties as humans. But I have something scarier to consider, something more frightening than just disappearing. Because, what if you went missing and you didn't even know you were missing? And what if this happened to you not once, not twice, but three times? That unsettling idea is what is at the heart of today's story. It might seem improbable, someone going missing without even knowing it, but I promise, not only is it possible, But for Hannah Up, it happened more than once. Which, when you learn that, makes one really beg the question, what in the world happened to Hannah Up? And where in the world is she? Let's get ready to get dark as hell. was, in a word and by all accounts, vibrant. The phrases lights up the room and life of the party have been used countless times by her friends, colleagues, and family members to describe her over the years. She loved the Myers-Briggs personality test, and she often used her own categorization to describe herself. She was a through-and-through ENFP. This means that she was extroverted, intuitive, feeling- perceiving. According to 16 personalities, which is a website designed to explore the Myers Briggs types, ENFPs are people who, quote, tend to embrace big ideas and actions that reflect their sense of hope and goodwill towards others. Their vibrant energy can flow in many directions. This is a true free spirit, charming, independent, energetic, and compassionate. Funnily enough, This website also describes ENFPs as the life of the party. Which makes it all the stranger and eerie when you realize this life of the party that was Hannah was able to completely disappear not just once, but three times. But before Hannah ever disappeared, she was, like all of us, someone with a backstory and her background is one that seemed to have shaped her into the woman that she was in 2017. And admittedly, her upbringing was unique. Hannah was born to David Up and Barbara Bellis, two Methodist ministers who raised her and her brother Dan in Oregon. What's interesting about her parents' profession is that, despite their ties to Methodism, they actually and primarily served in Japanese churches. It's... Unclear what drew them into such a niche community, especially since neither David nor Barbara have Japanese heritage, but Barbara was fluent in Japanese, and she'd spent some time teaching in Japan, so this is what seems to have been what led the two pastors into their community. In any regard, Hannah was said to have been, quote, the princess of her church, and she flourished in her upbringing. At 15, though, her parents divorced following years of religious beliefs that had begun to sharply contradict. According to Rachel Aviv's long form piece for The New Yorker, David, Hannah's father, characterized himself with the phrase Homo unius libri, man of the one book. Now that's a Latin phrase that's usually attributed to Thomas Aquinas, and originally it said that Aquinas' meaning was meant to actually say, I fear the man of a single book speaking to the idea that those who subscribe to a singular line of thought without consideration for different ideas or different beliefs than their own should be regarded with a sense of fear because of their limited worldview. Others, however, have a different interpretation, in that the man who is of one book is someone dedicated solely to an expertise of one precise focus, which is exactly what John Wesley, one of the founders of Methodism, interpreted it as. He, quote, declared himself to be a homo unius libri. And in that case, the one book being, of course, the Bible. So it's interesting then to see how David Up, Hannah's father, decided that he was going to follow that variation of the quote. He made himself a man of only the Bible, and he did so pretty fervently. After he and Barbara divorced, he uprooted himself to Asia, deciding to preach the gospel to indigenous tribes throughout Fiji, Palo Alto, Guam, Malta, India, Zimbabwe, and Guyana. Guyana, shout out Jim Jones. He has since then settled in the Philippines, where he allegedly lives in, quote, a one-room house in a remote village. All throughout this gospel spreading and traveling, though, Up was known for his monthly newsletters. It's been reported that these missives, often portrayed as soliloquies of the fiery, though not necessarily brimstone nature, sent out to colleagues, congregants, and friends around the world, quote, he urged that there is no such human as a natural homosexual. He urged his readers to, quote, fully support biblical morality and to oppose any compromise with sexual deviance slash perversion. And if you could see me right now, I'd be giving the proverbial camera a Jim from the office stare down directly into the lens, because fuck that shit. Hannah was 15 at the time of her parents' divorce and her father's abscondment across the world. She and her mother decided to make a move of their own, across the country, to Pennsylvania. Specifically, the mother-daughter duo relocated to Pendle Hill, a Quaker retreat that was just outside of Philadelphia, Quakerism, for those not in the know, is formerly, formerly known as the Religious Society of Friends, and it's an offshoot of Protestantism, which is a form of Christianity. Quakers' exact beliefs vary throughout the society, though they all do seem to hold true to the idea of, quote, continuing revelation, which is the belief in that God, quote, continuously reveals truth directly to individuals, and also they believe in the ability of each human being to experientially access what they call the light within, which seems like kind of the perfect place for the warm and inquisitive Hannah. When the time came, Hannah applied to and was accepted into Bryn Mawr College, which was less than 30 minutes away from Pendle Hill. Bryn Mawr is one of the Seven Sisters, a collection of seven Northeastern liberal arts colleges that are known to be highly selective and, historically speaking, all women. Two of the original seven, Radcliffe College and Vassar College, decided to do away with their all-women undergraduate programs. The remaining seven sisters are Bryn Mawr, Barnard, Mount Holyoke, Smith, and Wellesley. Now, when Hannah arrived at Bryn Mawr, she had yet to really explore who she as her own individual was. She was said to still be a creationist in that she believed that the universe was formed through a divine being and not, you know through scientific evolution. One of the first clubs that she joined on campus was IntraVarsity, which is not a sort of sports club. It's actually IntraVarsity Christian Fellowship, an evangelical Christian ministry group for college kids that's scattered variously across the U.S. However, by the time that she left Bryn Mawr, Hannah had deepened her understanding of herself. She'd reconciled her faith to what she held to be true and She had even started dating women. College is always a transformative time in one's life, but it seemed to be especially so for Hannah and especially her perspective of the world in relation to her faith. In one conversation that took place during their sophomore year, her friend Payali Bhattacharya, who was raised in a Hindu family, simply asked Hannah, do you think I'm going to hell? According to Payali, speaking to Rachel Aviv of The New Yorker, quote, Hannah lost it. She couldn't answer the question. Whereas another person might try to defend her beliefs, Hannah is the kind of person who would take a question like that and turn it in on herself and think about it and come out the other end being a different person. She knew she was loving and open-hearted, but beyond that, I think she had zero idea of who she actually was. She wanted to give herself over to someone or some idea. Later that same year, Hannah found herself at odds with who she was as a person and what her faith had instructed her again. She called her mother in tears after attending a lecture by Beth Stroud, a Methodist minister much like her own parents. However, Stroud shared the story of how, after she came out to her congregation and told them of her same-sex relationship, she was instead defrocked, removed entirely from her position, and denied her rights to function as an ordained minister. According to Barbara, quote, Hannah was troubled that something that she'd thought was part of her faith was cruel, especially since in context now, we know that Hannah was exploring and questioning her own sexuality and interests in women, which not an easy place to be in when your own father, religious leader of his own right, has denounced same-sex and queer relationships publicly. You'd... think that would open up a chasm for strife, for tension, for a real coming-to-God moment between father and daughter. But apparently not. Friends say that despite Hannah's own same-sex relationships and exploration into her attraction to women, she never had anything bad to say about her father. In fact, one friend said that she, quote, always spoke fondly of him, despite their worries that Hannah might have felt that she had to, quote, swallow a part of herself down to keep the peace with him. Hannah, though, still traveled at least once a year to visit her father wherever in the world that he was teaching. And as far as we know, she never made any mention of any arguments, any tension, or even if her father knew that she was dating women. Effervescent and kind Hannah may have been, there also seemed to be a degree of placidity to her personality, Almost a need to keep the peace, keep the harmony, keep things on the up and up in her life, or at least presented in that way. Speaking to Rachel Levy for The New Yorker, quote, her friend Amy Scott said, quote, Hannah lives in this separate place where there are butterflies and birds and they follow her around. Everything is good and everyone is happy and there's no conflict ever. That kind of mentality, if you ask me, always seems the most primed for conflict to arise, or at least has the promise of conflict on the horizon. It was 2007 and Hannah was fresh off the stage from her college graduation. She had double majored in Spanish and comparative literature and like so many new arrivals on the postgrad scene, she did what many do, move to New York City. She had a passion for Spanish, which deepened more after spending a semester of college in Buenos Aires, and she was able to translate that into a job as a Spanish teacher at Thurgood Marshall Academy in Harlem. When she wasn't teaching, Hannah was working on her master's in education at Pace University. She had an active social life as well. She was spending time volunteering with AIDS organizations, exploring the freegan movement, which is a, quote, subculture that eats only food that is free and vegan, wherein she learned how to safely find edible meals out of dumpsters, for instance, and she loved spending time with her roommates in their Hamilton Heights apartment. That first post-grad year was, simply put, good. And then August 2008 struck. On August 28, 2008, Hannah had a lot on her mind. The new school year was set to start the next day, and she'd be entering into her second year of teaching at Thurgood Marshall. In her position, she actually taught to over 200 7th and 8th graders. She had spent part of the summer in Japan visiting her brother, who was stationed as a Navy officer on base there, and she'd also made a stop in New Delhi to see her Bryn Maw friend, Piali. It's unclear if she also saw her father during her time in Asia, but it's been reported by a few outlets that she did, in fact, see David. After all that travel, she might have been getting back into the swing of things, as we all do, after a vacation. Maybe as an effort to clear her mind, maybe that's what inspired her to go for a run that day alongside Riverside Drive, one of her regular routes. Dressed in a sports bra and running shorts, Hannah left her Hamilton Heights apartment after saying goodbye to her roommate, Manuel Ramirez, earlier in the morning, wishing him good luck on his own first day back at work. And then she didn't come home. The alarm was sounded the next day, August 29th, when Hannah simply never showed up to her first day at school. Confused and worried, Manuel and Samantha Gallardo, the third roommate in the apartment, they didn't quite know what to do. Hannah was 23 at the time, so she was well within her rights to take off if she wanted to, even if she hadn't told anyone about her intentions to do so. Without any idea about what could have caused Hannah to run off, they waited for two more days. On on Sunday, August 31st, Manuel finally went into her room and found himself all the more concerned because what should have been missing wasn't. All of Hannah's forms of identification, her wallet, and even her cell phone and passport, they were in her room. It was then that Manuel knew that they couldn't wait any longer. It wasn't the middle of the night, so he woke Samantha up, and the two roommates went down to their local police station, the 30th Precinct. Initially, the NYPD didn't think too much of the story of the missing Hannah, but as Samantha and Manuel shared more details about their missing friend, the officer's sat up a little straighter, their ears pricked a little more, and the concern began to grow even in the precinct. Speaking to ABC6 News at the time, Samantha said that, quote, by 4 a.m. there were already detectives in our apartment. There's been police in our apartment ever since. To their credit, when the NYPD got involved, they got involved. Although admittedly, they worked from an angle that this case would most likely end up as a homicide. There were no witnesses. There was no evidence. Where was anyone else to start? Hannah's family and friends began coming together in New York City and across the world. Barbara, Hannah's mother, created a headquarter out of Hannah's apartment. The word went out through her Bryn network, and Hannah Wood, one of Hannah's best friends, created a Facebook group entitled We're Not Giving Up, up spelled U-P-P, We're Not Giving Up on Hannah. It was only the early aughts, so as much as they could, they spread the word online about the missing teacher, as the media began calling her. Because, oh yes, the media was paying close attention to this case, since it had got the ear and eye of not only the mayor's office, but also the teachers' union that Hannah was represented by. The union itself put up money for a reward, but no word from a kidnapper or any ransom demand ever arrived. Hannah's face was splashed everywhere across the city. Hundreds, if not thousands of posters bearing her face with her wide smile and a rose carefully pinned behind one of her ears. They were scattered throughout the streets of New York. Everyone, it truly seemed, knew that Hannah was missing. And yet, as the New York Times put it, quote, it was as if the city had simply opened wide and swallowed her whole. But the city decided to spit her back out on lightning quick blink and you'll miss it occasions because nine days after she was reported missing, she was spotted at an Apple store. The first sighting of Hannah came in on September 9th, and it came from someone who not only knew her, but spoke to her. One of Hannah's friends from her grad school classes was at the Apple store on 57th Street when he looked up and there was Hannah, dressed in a sports bra, her running shorts, and with her lobbed hair swept off her face in a very high ponytail. She was staring at one of the laptops. When he approached her, he asked almost incredulously, are you the missing teacher? Are are you Hannah? Are you the Hannah? Caught on surveillance tape, the video shows the exchange and shows Hannah shaking her head and making a dismissive but distinctive hand gesture. According to Barbara, quote, I could see her blow off what he was saying, and I knew instantly it was her. It was all her. She has this characteristic gesture. It's like, oh, no, no, don't you worry. You know me. I'm fine. Another surveillance tape caught sight of what Hannah had been doing at the laptop. She had logged into her Gmail account. No activity registered, though. She didn't write, send, or even open any emails. She simply logged in stared at the screen, and then walked away. Barbara told ABC News for their documentary Vanished in Paradise that she instinctively knew something, something was wrong as she watched the tape of her daughter. Something wasn't right with Hannah. Just as quickly as she had been seen bounding up the stairs into the 57th Street store, she vanished again. Two days later, on September 11th, she was seen at a Starbucks. Police hurried over to the Soho location, but it was too late. She'd slipped out a back door by the time that they arrived. Throughout the next few days, it was reported as many as five times that she was seen at various New York sports clubs locations, where she held a gym membership, and most likely where she was showering. We know for certain that she was seen at one of the clubs at least once because Hannah offered up her key fob ID number from memory and verified who she was to the front desk check-in girl. Yes, she was Hannah. Only Hannah, though, since the receptionist either didn't have to or didn't bother to ask her last name once she saw the key fob ID number attached to the name. You have to wonder what would have happened if the girl had, or if she even realized who was standing in front of her. Once again, though, as quickly as she emerged from the depths of the New York City streets, she sank back into them again. It was approaching the three-week mark of Hannah's disappearance, and the frantic energy surrounding the search for her hadn't dissipated yet. The fear for her safety grew as well, because how was she surviving? How did she not know people were looking for her? What was going on? It was on September 16th, the 20th day of her disappearance, when Captain Chris Covella was guiding the Staten Island Ferry southbound out of Manhattan towards St. George on his regular route. It was a normal, nice day, in his words, and as the ferry cut through the water, he happened to glance out towards Robin's Reef, a little spark plug lighthouse sat in the middle of the bay. And then he glanced again, looked, purposely this time. There was something in the water. Except what he saw made no sense because, quote, it appeared to be a head, a head face down in the water attached to a body that, according to one of Covella's deckhands, Ephraim Washington, it wasn't, quote, trying to turn over, not trying to swim, just face down. Immediately, Covella slowed the boat and began to turn towards what he and his crew assumed was a body. Washington and another deckhand, Michael Sabatino, raced to the deck to prepare a 12-foot aluminum skiff to hang off the edge of the boat as Covella did his best to edge the boat alongside Robin's Reef so the deckhands could cast the skiff off from there. Within minutes, Sabatino and Washington were approaching the body. Washington managed to secure a grip under the arms, turn the face up from the water, and together the two men lifted the body into the skiff. And after they realized it wasn't a lifeless body that they had just pulled aboard, but it was a breathing one that didn't seem to have any cuts, bruises, injuries, or otherwise noticeable wounds, then they realized something else. The spluttering, crying body. they had just pulled out of the water was the missing teacher they had found hannah up the thing about finding hannah though is that they didn't find any truly concrete answers about what had happened to her in the nearly three weeks that she had been missing after Hannah was pulled out of the water that morning, an ambulance met Captain Covella and his crew to take her over to Richmond University Medical Center, located on Staten Island. She had come, in the words of one of the deckhands from the ferry, quote, as close to drowning as you could get. When she arrived at the hospital, it was clear she was in bad shape. She was dehydrated, badly sunburned, and she had a dangerously low body temperature to the point of being hypothermic. But, like her rescuers had noticed, there weren't any visible injuries on Hannah's body except for a large blister on the back of her heel. Within an hour of her arriving at the hospital, Barbara was also there. Because Hannah had been able to tell the medical staff her name and her mother's cell phone number. When her mother walked into her hospital room, though, It was clear that her sense of something being wrong with her daughter, the one that she had gotten as she watched the surveillance tapes from the Apple store, was right. Because all Hannah had to say upon seeing her mother was, why am I wet? The sinking feeling, that unwelcome knowledge that something is off. It only grew as the day went on four of her friends, including Manuel, arrived at the hospital later in the afternoon to see their missing friend, and they too realized that something wasn't right. According to Manuel, when the friends trooped into her room, Hannah, quote, saw me and smiled and said something like, I hope they release me soon because I have to set up my classroom. She clearly didn't get that three weeks had passed. The last thing that Hannah could remember, as she told her mother, her friends, and the police when they too arrived at the hospital, was going for a run on Riverside Drive, three weeks ago. She had no explanation for what had happened since she stepped outside of her apartment, what had happened in the days, in the weeks afterwards, or anything in between. The last 20 days were gone, lost to her, an inexplicable blank. Once she was physically on the mend, Hannah was transferred to the Columbia University Medical Center and, more specifically, to their psychiatric unit. She underwent a series of tests, MRIs, brain imaging, CAT scans, and doctors found nothing physically wrong with her brain. As far as they could tell, there was nothing neurologically wrong with her. There was no physical indicator that could explain why and how Hannah had forgotten her entire identity for nearly three weeks. It was then, though, that doctors offered up a possible diagnosis, one so rare it's thought only to affect 0.2% of people in the world from it. Dissociative fugue disorder. Dissociative fugue, which I'll call fugue steak for simplicity's sake is a dissociative disorder, and it's an offshoot of dissociative amnesia. So let's break those two down first. Dissociative disorders are defined as, quote, conditions that involve disruptions or breakdowns of memory, awareness, identity, or perception. People who are diagnosed with these disorders primarily use their dissociation as a form of protection from psychological trauma, except their episodes are brought on involuntarily and often pathologically pathologically in this sense, meaning compulsively, at the hint of trauma being triggered, someone with a dissociative disorder has the instinct to enter one of their episodes uncontrolled by them. From Rachel Levy's New Yorker article, she spoke with Richard Lowenstein, the medical director of the Trauma Disorders Program at Shepherd Pratt in Towson, Maryland. He described his experiences with few patients as such, quote, There's a quality of them running away from whatever you are trying to ask them. If you begin to hold on to them and try to get them to stay in one place, they go. They're gone. Many of the dissociative disorders have been renamed in recent years to more completely and accurately identify them. The American Psychiatric Association and the DSM-5 recognize three distinct disorders that fall under the umbrella of dissociation. There's dissociative identity disorder which is formerly known as multiple personality disorder. It is defined as the presentation and maintenance of two or more distinct personality states with impaired recall among the personality states. There's dissociative amnesia, which is the most common of dissociative disorders. People with dissociative amnesia have a temporary loss of recall memory, specifically episodic memory, due to a traumatic or stressful event. Episodic memory is the recall of specific events, so someone with dissociative amnesia will typically lose recall of their memory from a particular event, like your seventh birthday, say, because of some trauma that it induced. And there's depersonalization-derealization disorder, which are defined as periods of detachment from self or surrounding from which may be experienced as, quote, unreal, lacking in control of or outside self, while retaining awareness that this is only a feeling and not a reality. Fugue state, like I said, is classified as a sort of sibling to dissociative amnesia. As defined by the DSM-5, dissociative fugue is, quote, a rare psychiatric disorder characterized by reversible amnesia for personal identity, including the memories, personality, and other identifying characteristics of individuality. Some people refer to it as Bourne syndrome after Jason Bourne, since that's precisely what the movie character is said to have suffered from. Rachel Levine, on the Vanished in Paradise doc, put it another way that helps to conceptualize it. Quote, you go offline from your own personality. In my own layman's understanding, you lose your sense of self. There is a complete disconnect from your body and your identity. The DSM-5 also, kind of quaintly if you ask me, describes Fugue as a sort of bewildered wandering, since people within a Fugue state almost always travel to some degree, maybe to a different room in the house that you suddenly find yourself in, blocks away from your apartment building with no recollection of making the trip, or even face down in the middle of the Hudson Bay. Fugue usually presents in people who have experienced trauma. It's seen as a psychological defense mechanism. Psychology Today states that fugue is used to combat trauma in that it, quote, helps people disconnect from extreme psychological distress. The dissociative fugue state is a condition in which a person may be mentally and physically escaping an environment that is threatening or otherwise intolerable. The thing about that, though, is as far as anyone, Hannah or otherwise, could say is that she never experienced some sort of trauma. Barbara claims that there was no trauma from Hannah's childhood that she was aware of. David, Hannah's father, and her brother Daniel, they said the same. There had been nothing traumatic, at least as far as they could classify it, to happen to Hannah when growing up. Hannah even underwent hypnosis while at the Columbia Psychiatric Unit to see if she had any repressed memories, if there was some event that she had blocked out, anything at all locked away in her memory that could have instigated her fugue. But there was nothing. Dr. David Spiegel of the Stanford Psychiatric Department is something of the leading expert on fugue state. He acknowledges that while fugue states are usually triggered by emotional or physical trauma, someone in a fugue is not... Always someone with a traumatized history, often, but not always. However, he did also add this when speaking to ABC for their Hannah Up documentary. Quote, these people don't come from absolutely normal backgrounds. Her roommate Manuel recalled that there was one afternoon the two spent at the hospital spitballing ideas about what could have been the trigger switch on August 28th. Quote Hannah was her normal upbeat funny self. I remember her rattling off all of these possibilities. Was I in a hit and run? Was I mugged? Was I assaulted? Hannah wasn't the only one with questions. The police had plenty of their own for her as well. One detective who headed up her case shared that quote, "I don't think she didn't know who she was." Logically, it doesn't make sense. Evading the police and the NYPD at that for weeks on end, is admittedly no easy feat. Police wondered if her family or even some friends knew where Hannah had been during her missing three weeks and if they were just, quote, talking her off a ledge. They wondered how Hannah had been able to log into her Gmail, how she had known to recite her key fob number at the gym, and that she did, by the account of the desk girl at the sports club, know to answer to the name Hannah. Dr. Spiegel believes that Hannah was merely following mechanisms of muscle memory, that these rote motions had become ingrained in her mind and body as simple procedural routines enough that she didn't even need to be fully connected to herself to complete them. And I mean, given the way that we can just tap in our passwords onto any such device, I can buy that. (laughs) Speculative whispers wound their way through the media as well. One article filed the week before Hannah was found by Laura Italiano of the New York Post spoke of a source who claimed, quote, apparently she was petrified of going back to school. She just wigged out and went AWOL. Other outlets wondered if perhaps Hannah had tried to take her own life by jumping off the Staten Island Pier. But that didn't make sense, at least not logistically, since Hannah compared the lunar and tidal records with Captain Cavella, the same man who had first spotted her. Speaking to Rebecca Marks of the New York Times, Hannah believed that, strong swimmer though she was, it would have been, quote, impossible to jump off the pier and swim against the current to the spot where she was found. It was from the water, though, that Hannah began to piece together a possible explanation for how she wound up in the bay. Her brother Dan had flown in from Japan during her disappearance, and after she was discharged... She walked the city with her brother to see what might hit, what might trigger, what might elicit some sort of response from her body, at least. As they walked along the downtown piers, Hannah stopped at Pier 40. It felt familiar. A memory sparked. There had been lights on the water. Floating lights. Dan did some research and found out that, on September 11th, as a memorial for the World Trade Center victims, there had been a Japanese floating lantern ceremony on that same pier. It would have been something that Hannah recognized in sight and as a memory, thanks to their unique childhood. Dan also remembered that, when they had been children, Hannah had once participated in an Obon festival, a Japanese custom where a family gathers to pay respects and memorialize their ancestors. There's also a portion of the festival that has a floating lantern ceremony. Barbara believes that something resonated within Hannah at seeing the 9/11 memorial that day. To the New York Times she elaborated, "quote, something about that powerful ritual registered." Hannah was found in the water on September 16th though. So, when had she actually gone into the water? Hannah believed that she must have left Manhattan late at night based on the lunar tides. Furthermore, working backwards from when she was found and from the physical clues that the state of her body was in, it's theorized that after two or three more days of wandering, she circled back to Pier 40 where she had witnessed the ceremony, and on either the 13th or the 14th, she entered the water. It's unclear how exactly Hannah found herself on Robin's reef as well, whether she was tossed about in the water unwittingly. Barbara shared that Hannah told her that she remembered, quote, holding on to the hull of a barge at one point, or if she used her strong swimming skills to make her own way out there. No matter the manner, she made it though. The scraped knees she got from its rocks and the sunburn it's believed that she retained from possibly sleeping there without any shade, they speak to that. What's also, again, unclear is why she then returned, though, into the water on the 16th. Hannah couldn't explain it. And at the same time, she struggled to make sense of her new diagnosis and this new life. She worried that she'd be known forever as that missing teacher. The embarrassment from the media attention and the comment section vultures who accused her of staging her three weeks of missing time made her consider moving to Japan with her brother, or even of changing her name. And, like everyone else, playing witness to this bizarre scene in her life, she had a few questions of her own. During the only interview that she gave after her rescue, which was shared with Rachel Marks of the New York Times, Hannah reflected, "'Who was I before?' Who was I then during the missing three weeks? Is that part of me? Who am I now? As she came to grips with her new reality, though, her friend Hayali said Hannah came to one resolution: quote "She ultimately decided, and she was very clear on this that she did not want to run away from who Hannah Up was. She might not have wanted to run away from Hannah Up, but she did run again away from New York City." One year later, back to Pendle Hill. It seems that even though Hannah was firm in her resolution to not let her dissociative fugue disorder diagnosis define her, she still decided to leave New York. A little over a year after her three-week disappearance, she journeyed south and reunited with her mother at Pendle Hill, the Quaker retreat where she had spent the last few years of her high school experience. She developed a quiet life at Pendle Hill one that aligned with the Quaker's practice of holding silence in order to find answers within yourself. She worked in the kitchens, attended daily meetings, and even dated another resident, a man named Patrick. The warm, giving nature that Hannah was known for seemed to increase tenfold while at Pendle Hill. It was a true community that lived at Pendle Hill. Look at Hannah's job, for instance. She was literally cooking for other people who lived there. People leaned on each other. They helped each other out in any way that they could, and it seemed to spark something in Hannah. Friends she made there described her as, quote, so attentive it felt impossible to reciprocate. Her one-time boyfriend even stated when discussing both her nature and her disorder that, quote, Hannah gives so much to other people that, at a certain point, there is literally nothing left, and she departs from herself. When Hannah was entering her third year at Pendle Hill, she got good news. She'd been offered a position as a teaching assistant at a local Montessori school in Kensington, Maryland, about two hours away, which would require her to relocate once more. Hannah signing up for the Montessori educational system seems so, so on the mark for what we know of her. It's a particularly holistic form of education for children, since Maria Montessori, the founder, believed in educating children in all ways, physically, cognitively, socially, and emotionally. Montessori educators are encouraged to, quote, initiate learning in a supportive, thoughtfully prepared learning environment, and to allow children a real sense of autonomy and freedom for their own learning. There's an undercurrent of harmony, a little bit of a peace love flavor, definitely. Patrick, Hannah's former boyfriend, noted to the New Yorker how enthusiastic Hannah was about Montessori and this new adventure for her. Quote, she flung herself, all of her weight, into learning Montessori, internalizing Montessori, loving Montessori. So it would be at the start of September 2013. Another move, another beginning, and another school year. September 3rd, 2013 was set to be Hannah's first day of class at Crossway Montessori School. So when Barbara received a call later that morning from a Maryland area code, she must have been surprised. And she must have been filled with dread when she realized that it was the Montgomery County Police of Maryland calling her, saying her daughter's purse, cell phone, and Wallet had been discovered abandoned in a wooded footpath, just beyond a busy shopping plaza in Kensington. Hannah was gone. Again. As Barbara, Pendlehill residents, and some of the old troops from Hannah's 2008 disappearance in New York rounded themselves up, only a few facts were able to be cobbled together, and they painted a concerning and strange picture. Hannah had arranged to have lunch with her mother on Monday, the day before, but she had inexplicably canceled. Barbara and Hannah's friends learned that, throughout the whole of Monday, no one had actually really talked to Hannah, and she allegedly didn't sleep at her apartment that Monday night either. Strangest of all is that a co-worker saw her on Tuesday morning around 7.45am, right around when she should have been heading over to Crossway, since that was precisely what the co-worker in question was doing herself. It struck her as odd, then, that Hannah wasn't driving in the direction of Crossway. She was walking quickly, it seemed, in the opposite direction. It was the last sighting of her that day. Once again, friends printed off flyers with Hannah's face to hang around town, and the police searched the densely forested area where her belongings had been found, searching for any sign of Hannah. This time, they didn't have to search long. On Wednesday, September 4th, at around 10.30 p.m., Barbara received another call. Another call with a Maryland area code. And this time, it was Hannah on the phone. According to Barbara, all Hannah said from the opposite end of the line was, Mom? As Hannah told it, when she was reunited with her friends and family, she came to on her own, knowing exactly who she was when she regained her hold on her identity, while sitting in the middle of a small creek, still in the same wooded area where her belongings had been found. There was apparently a shopping cart beside her, and she was only a mile and a half away from Crossway, so she'd spent the last day and a half to two days simply walking. Realizing what must have happened, Hannah apparently clambered out of the river, found her way back to the same shopping plaza where her wallet and purse had been found, and she asked what must have been a bewildered stranger if she could use their cell phone. Within just a few days of her second disappearance, Hannah officially started her first day at Crossway. She was still, by all appearances, unwilling to let her dissociative disorder get in the way of her life even though at that point, she had defied the odds that had been offered up by several doctors that she would never experience such a jarring fugue state again like the one that she had in New York. You have to wonder, though, if that jarring sense of life events is what shocked her fugue state into overdrive. I mean, consider it. The second disappearance and her first had a number of similarities between them. They were both at the start of the academic year, The second disappearance took place on September 3rd. Hannah's first disappearance started on August 28th back in 2008. They both happened after a change of location. The first time Hannah disappeared, she had just returned home from a whirlwind trip to Asia to see her brother in Japan, her friend in India, and her father somewhere along the way. The second disappearance happened shortly after Hannah had moved to the Kensington area of Maryland, where she'd never been before. I should note Hannah's father, David, who was seemingly absent during most of the effort to locate his daughter, this time and the first time, he didn't seem to appreciate the suggestion that something about Hannah's visits to him might be cause for her fugue. Speaking to The New Yorker, he wrote over email, quote, and this is from the reporter, David Up had pondered whether the vacations had been a trigger for her, but he wasn't satisfied with that explanation. Over email, quote, travel... That's just what we do. Hannah and I have been to 25 nations together, so it is normal, not disruptive. And another similarity, she always seemed to regain control of her identity when she was physically in a body of water. Even with those connections between the disappearances, connections one might hope to find some answers in, the fact remained, no one knew what to make of any of it. I have to wonder, though, if anyone had a thought to share and spare when it came to 2014. Because the very next year, Hannah was on the move. Again. It hadn't even been a full year since Hannah's second disappearance when she was packing up her life again. She'd been offered a new position at a new Montessori school, one that wasn't even within the continental U.S., No. This time, Hannah was leaving the East Coast, and she was heading to the island of St. Thomas in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Hannah arrived on St. Thomas in 2014, ready to start her new island life. She'd made at least one big change this time around at the beginning of this new life. She actually told her employers about her dissociative condition. By all accounts, they were still, quote, warm and welcoming to their newest teaching assistant, the one who was so enthused about Montessori education, and the one whose classroom administrators always took prospective parents to see. Despite some joke-laden but definitely still serious conversations after her second disappearance, Hannah still refused to wear some sort of tracking device designed to keep her safe should she enter a fugue state again. By this time, though, she was 29, and save for having her label the danger to herself, her friends and worried family couldn't force her to do anything about it. Her mother, in fact, says that she tried to honor Hannah's decision. Quote, she didn't want to pursue it. She refused to be defined by this, and I chose to honor her decision. I had to be clear that I'm not living my daughter's life. She's living it, and she needed to have the freedom to make choices and living, seems to be exactly what Hannah did on St. Thomas. As she always did, she drew people in and created her own community. She fell in love with Zumba and joined a dance troupe that performed every year at Carnival. She became best friends with another teacher at her school, Maggie Guzman, and even dated a local named Joey Spolino. Things at her beloved Montessori school were going great as well. One year after she arrived in 2015, the school encouraged, and paid for, Hannah to attend further training in the Montessori system out in Portland, Oregon, so she could become a full teacher of her own classroom. She then began studying to receive further certification in Montessori education itself. Her friend Maggie remarked that she simply absorbed all things Montessori and that it became a sort of new Bible to her. Her close friend from Bryn Mawr, Payali saw it as quote, Hannah's new church. There's a book. There are rules. If you follow the rules, good things happen to good people. Her desire to worship never left her. Life on St. Thomas was peaceful, blissful even. The years went by full of dancing and sunshine and that sense of no conflict ever that her friends had joked that she often strived for. She seemed to have really found her own Hannah land in real life. It was in 2017 that Hannah was introduced to a facet of island life that wasn't so sunshine and good times. And that was hurricane season. From her time on St. Thomas, Hannah had become acquainted with hurricanes and how much they could affect an island and its population. But in September 2017, the hurricane season was different because this season had Irma. Hurricane Irma, even before it approached St. Thomas, was creating quite the cause for concern. At the time, it was already considered one of the most powerful hurricanes on record, and it was an easy admittance to the Category 5 crew. The media began calling it Irmageddon, and it lived up to that name after it did make landfall. At the beginning of September, Things were in full speed on St. Thomas for Hannah. She had just completed her Montessori degree and she was preparing to enter her fourth year at the school, as well as preparing herself for the imminent landfall of Hurricane Irma. By September 6th, Irma had made her presence known. At the house that Hannah shared with a few roommates, they huddled together as 185 mile per hour winds screamed overhead. Maggie Guzman described the concrete walls around them as, quote, bowing in on themselves, as Hannah texted her mother that, quote, hurricane winds are nuts. We are sheltered in place in the laundry room. Throughout the whole of the U.S. Virgin Islands, St. Thomas would be found to be hit the hardest. There were millions, if not billions, of dollars of structural damage, and even the police station and the lone airport were destroyed in the hurricane's path. As residents picked themselves up off of their floors and emerged into the light of what their island looked like now, Hannah sent off a text to one of her friends in dismay. Quote, I don't recognize anything. In retrospect, that might have been the first sign. On September 12th, in the midst of rebuilding the island with a sense of normalcy, Hannah attended a staff meeting at the Montessori School with her colleagues, and they received devastating Terrifying news: Another hurricane, another Category Five, was headed their way. Hurricane Maria, as Maggie Hannah's teacher friend phrased it, "People panicked. There was a scramble to get out." Hannah drove to her by then ex-boyfriend Joey's house, and she saw that his things were already gone. His landlord told her that he had headed down to the Marine at the news of. Maria, intent on getting passage on one of the mercy ships that had assembled and was giving free passage to anyone who wanted it off of the island. Hannah drove down and through the crowds, she found Joey. He noticed that she looked like she hadn't slept and she seemed a little distraught, mostly about the incoming damage and how it would affect not only the island, but also her students. At one point in their conversation, Joey even suggested to Hannah that she join him on the mercy mercy ship bound for Puerto Rico. She declined, though, saying that St. Thomas is where she felt that she needed to be. They said their goodbyes, and they parted ways. After leaving the marina, Hannah did not use her phone again. The next day, September 13th, Hannah was helping to prepare the school for the effects of yet another Category 5 hurricane. As she took instruction from Norma Bollinger, a director for the school, Hannah's behavior struck Norma as odd. Reflecting on it during the Vanished in Paradise documentary, she said that Hannah's voice is what seemed strange at first. It was, quote, sing song and yes, Norma or no Norma. She seemed compliant, strangely so, and certainly not the normal Hannah as Norma knew her. When Hannah arrived home, she was met with the announcement from her three roommates that they were following in Joey's example. They, too, were going to leave the island. Again, though, Hannah refused to join them. According to one of her roommates, Leslie Bunnell, quote, Hannah told her, I'm staying. That's where my heart is. School is going to be the first step towards normality for these kids. On September 14th, that same roommate was up around 8 a.m. and caught sight of Hannah, She watched as Hannah got into her car and drove away, apparently heading to school. She didn't arrive at the Montessori school. The next day, Maggie was surprised. There was an all-staff meeting in preparation for Maria's predicted landfall on the next day or so, and Hannah didn't show. In fact, other colleagues spoke up and shared how Hannah hadn't been at school the day before either. Maggie offered to swing by her house and see if she was there to make sure that everything was all right. Except when she arrived at Hannah's house, there was no Hannah. No Hannah, and not even her car. Unsure of what to do, Maggie got in contact with some friends of Hannah from home, who they hadn't even spoken to Hannah since the twelfth, and to a confused Maggie, these friends only told her to quote, search by the water. Maggie now had no idea what that meant. What, did Hannah have some strange gravitation towards the water that she didn't know about? And she could only take the advice for what it was worth. With a few friends, they decided on September 16th to take a look over by Sapphire Beach first, since it was known to be Hannah's favorite spot. When they saw her car in the beach's parking lot, they felt that they were in luck. Sure, it was weird that her purse, her passport, her cell phone, her voter ID, her credit cards, and what appeared to be hundreds of dollars in cash were all simply sitting inside, but they decided to worry not for a moment and pressed on. As they walked the beach, that hope seemed to dwindle and the worries grew louder. And it transcended into baffled dread when a construction worker approached them. He was helping to make some slight pre-Maria repairs to the beachfront, bar that had been practically destroyed by Irma, and he made an odd discovery in the sand before they arrived, and he thought it might help the gaggle of people who were now walking up and down the beach searching for their friend. He had folded the parcel up carefully at first, leaving it on a bar stool to be reclaimed by its rightful owner at some point, but brought it over to the group. It was a sarong, a sundress, and a towel. He had a pair of flip-flops in his hands as well, and they were all identified as Hannah's. Imagine it yourselves, the chaos of an incoming hurricane following one that already ripped through your island. You now have one of your friends missing, missing for at least two days by the point that you realize something is desperately wrong. So needless to say, Hannah's friends on St. Thomas were frantic and they had no idea what they were really up against. In a way, the clock was ticking, but in a distinctive way that it often doesn't chime in these sorts of strange cases. The first move that the group, who were led by Maggie, made was to contact the Coast Guard. It was reason enough to believe that Hannah had been at the beach thanks to her abandoned items, so had she gone into the water as well? She was known to be a strong swimmer and had only grown stronger since moving to the island and having the ocean at her disposal. Could she have swum out to another island, one of the 80 that were scattered throughout the area? Theoretically, it was possible, especially in such a strange post- and pre-hurricane time. If, If a boat in the water had seen Hannah swimming, who's to say that they wouldn't have stopped and brought her aboard? And with the panic to leave the island before Maria arrived, no one was too closely examining anyone's documents, if they were examining them at all. Maybe Hannah had gotten onto a mercy ship somehow. But the question that seemed to stick in everyone's craw was, why would Hannah have even gone down to the beach in the first place? It was a wreck, a tangled mess of uprooted trees and smashed sheet metal. It was a danger, if anything, not at all peaceful. It didn't make any sense. No one on St. Thomas within Hannah's group of friends knew what to make of any of it. There were already people missing and strewn about the islands, thanks to Irma, so maybe Hannah was among them. It was decided that someone should reach out to Hannah's family to see if they had heard from her, but it appeared that no one had any sort of contact information readily available. So, one of Hannah's colleagues from the Montessori school, a woman named Jana, decided to do a quick Google search of Hannah's name to see if she could come up with any phone number or email. What she came up with was an even more alarming clue, if you could even call it a clue. Because Jana stumbled upon an article. And it should be noted, if you haven't gathered by now, that even though Hannah had told her boss about her dissociative disorder back in 2014 when she arrived on the island, for the last three years, she had told no one else in her life on St. Thomas about her past and her mysterious disappearances. No one had had any idea about this side of Hannah before they unwittingly discovered it themselves. And they only learned of it the day before Hurricane Maria struck on September 19th. They'd only had about two or three days to even look for her. Again, imagine it yourselves. You have a hurricane approaching, And one of your friends is inexplicably missing. Your clock is already counting down and now you learn possibly the most crucial piece of evidence just as the clock hits zero. Like I said at the start of our story, imagine if you went missing and you didn't even know it. But now let me ask you this. Imagine if you went missing and you had no idea you were missing as one of the deadliest hurricanes is barreling into your island home and destroying everything you might recognize, anything that might have sparked recognition somewhere deep within you. Destroying, it seems, like any chance of finding your way back to yourself. Because friends, let me tell you, that might be one of the scariest things I've ever heard. And it's precisely the scenario that was facing Hannah up. Trying to search for a missing person in a sea of missing people following a natural disaster might seem like a fool errands to some. Trying to do so when the missing person in question doesn't have a clue who they are or that they're missing, that's an entirely different nightmare to sort out. Knowing what they do now, and looking back in retrospect, Hannah's island friends see that there may have been signs Hannah was entering a fugue, say, before she vanished. There were talks of Hannah being distant, of pulling away. And, of course, it was the start of the school year, which is theorized to be one of her triggers, combined with the stress of hurricanes? I don't know. But if you ask me, regrets also fall under the fool's errand category especially in situations like these. Situations no one could ever have expected. It's been three years since Hannah was confirmed to have last been seen on the island of St. Thomas, but that doesn't mean that there haven't been sightings of her since. There have been dozens of tips, dozens of sightings, sometimes even multiple sightings in one day over the years. Just five months after she vanished, Detectives on the island were alerted that she was seen in a drug den on a dicier side of town, except the woman in question wasn't Hannah. And when Barbara arrived on the scene to see if it was, the woman apologized, saying that she had heard about Hannah's story and that she wished she could be her for Barbara. There were sightings of Hannah crawling out of a bush in a wooded area, much like her second disappearance. Some claim that they saw her panhandling. Others said that she was spotted at a different private school on a different island. There have been alleged sightings in Santo Domingo, Puerto Rico. None of them have ever been Hannah. There are those that believe Hannah is dead. It's an easy enough assumption to make. Missing girl dies in hurricane, never to be found. Girl goes swimming before hurricane and is swept out to sea, never to be found. Some, though, argue that if she had drowned or had been washed out to sea during the storm, her body would have washed ashore surly by now. But when a hurricane is added to the mix of a story, truly anything is possible. What might seem logical in the face of scientific patterns and facts often get brushed aside with the winds of a hurricane. There are some, though, like quite a few of Hannah's friends and family, who believe, against the odds, she might be alive. After all, no one ever confirmed that Hannah was seen in the water on that last day. In the chaos of after a hurricane like Maria and Irma combined, the Caribbean afforded anyone looking to escape the opportunity to do so, with or without an identity. Hannah was fluent in Spanish, after all, and she was known to be charming. Even without any paperwork or documentation. She might have been able to do something that most who suffer from dissociative fugue disorder aren't supposed to be capable of, creating an entirely new identity. Maybe she became someone else, someone who didn't and still doesn't want to be found. The theories about what did, what has, or what might have come of Hannah Up are endless. And like a majority of her life, made up of these three baffling disappearances, We're left with only theories and hashtag questions to consider. So let's talk about them. Question number one. During her first disappearance in New York, why wasn't Hannah reported missing sooner, if not by her roommates, then at least by her employer at Thurgood Marshall when she just didn't show up to work? Is there a trigger behind Hannah's traveling that kickstarted her first Fugue episode? Did she actually, in fact, see her father on that trip before her first disappearance? And what was her relationship really like with him? What about the start of the school year could be a trigger for Hannah? Did something happen during her time at school as a child or as a teacher that served as a trigger? Hell, how did she survive for 19 days without knowing who she was? Did she engage in freeganism to eat like some have suggested, or was somebody helping her along the way? Did she use her NYCSC membership to shower? And if so, how did the front desk girl not recognize her or put two and two together when Hannah agreed that yes, she was Hannah when she checked in? How did Hannah remain undetected in New York City for 19 days despite the extensive search for her? Was Hannah at the Japanese Lake Festival, and is that what triggered her to go into the water after all? How long was she in the water for? How did she make it to the Lighthouse Island? Did anyone see her on the island, and if not, how didn't they? Why did she eventually go back into the water? Was Hannah's father involved at all with the search for her during her first appearance? Was Hannah, quote, petrified of going back to school, like an article in the New York Post claimed? Could that have been the trigger for her first episode? And if so, what was she so scared of? What was the driving factor that led Hannah to leave New York in 2009 and move back to Pendle Hill? That's never been made clear. When Hannah went missing in Maryland, was the start of the school year her trigger for that episode? how did she manage to stay hidden for two days in an area admittedly so close to her school and a busy shopping plaza? How was she able to come to from her second fugue so much more quickly than the first? Why was she so resistant to the idea of a tracking device, especially after her second disappearance? And when she moved to St. Thomas, why did she refuse to tell anyone else except her boss about her disorder, despite having already disappeared twice. Did the destruction of Hurricane Irma and the anxiety about Hurricane Maria kickstart Hannah's third fugue state? Or did something with her experience of watching her ex-boyfriend and still close friend leave on a mercy ship start the fugue state since she stopped acting like herself afterwards? Why was Hannah acting strangely towards her colleague on the 13th with a sing-song voice and unfamiliar behavior? Was she already in the beginning stages of a fugue? Where did Hannah go on the morning of September 14th? And did she ever actually make it to Sapphire Beach? If she did, why did she leave her things in the sand? And where did she go after? If Hannah didn't make it to Sapphire Beach, then how did her things get there? Did someone attack her and get away with it in the midst of the pre-hurricane panic? Why would Hannah have gone to the beach at all in the middle of all the chaos about the hurricane? It was a disaster site, so what drew her there? When Maggie Guzman called Hannah's friends asking if they'd heard from her, why didn't they elaborate about Hannah's condition to her? Even if someone I thought knew my friend who had something like this, I feel like I would have made a point to be like, oh, well, you know about her fugue state, right? It just, it baffles me that Instances like these, we always look back and if we knew them, what we know now. So why didn't they make sure that that communication was so clear? Why didn't Hannah's boss disclose her condition to her colleagues as soon as she went missing? How much time did they lose looking for Hannah without that crucial piece of information? Did Hannah go into the water at Sapphire Beach at all? Was she picked up by a friendly boat looking to help? Did she get onto a mercy ship even without any documentation? Because she created a life for herself somewhere else in the Caribbean under an entirely new identity of her own creation. But if she is alive, how has there been no trace of her since September 14th, 2017? Or, if she did go into the water that day, did Hannah drown in some unexplained accident? Did her body never wash ashore because of the ecological insanity caused by Hurricane Maria? Did Hannah ever leave St. Thomas at all? The story of Hannah Up is one that seems inexplicably aligned with chaos theory and butterfly wings and the causation of hurricanes. The smallest thing, something as innocuous as a butterfly's wing, seems liable to start the beginnings of an internal hurricane inside someone like Hannah, whipping them into their own identity-less chaos. Those hairpin triggers combined with someone who seemed to be on the brink of diving into the eye of her own storm once again and in the setting of an actually approaching hurricane, well, it really all does seem like chaos theory played out in a very real way. It's been three years now since Hannah was last seen. Her mother has become something of a fixture on the island of St. Thomas, and it honestly wouldn't surprise me if you rounded a street corner and happened upon a flyer with the picture of Hannah bearing the same smile and same white rose pinned behind her ear that was used during her New York City disappearance. The St. Thomas investigators, after all, still consider the case open. Most of her loved ones agree that if anyone, anyone is going to defy the odds in such an incredible situation like this, it'll be Hannah. Hannah is still being searched for, despite the myriad of theories, the possibilities, and the chaos surrounding both her life and her disappearances. Hannah is still also being emailed every day by her mother. Barbara sends an email or text to her daughter's account and phone number at least once a day, confident that her daughter is somewhere out in the world, unknowing, at least for the moment, that she is someone's daughter. One such text reads, Good morning, dear daughter, wherever you are. I love you immensely and forever, wherever you are. Please come home. Hannah Up. I just have one question to ask. Where in the world are you? Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you are liking what you're hearing, please go leave a five-star review and rating for the show over on Apple Podcasts. It helps get da word out there even more. I'll be back here next week with another hashtag question-loaded story to tell you. Before I sign off, I want to give a shout out to uh, Charlotte Evison, our very own DA devotee over on Patreon, who got to pick this week's topic. P.S. Happy birthday, my friend. There is some exciting news that DA was featured in the Discover Rhode Island Digital Magazine this month. You can read the piece for yourself over at issuu.com slash Ocean State Magazine, that's issue.com slash ocean state magazine but i'll also link that over on the patreon and the daw website as well if you're interested in joining the daw patreon crew you can head on over to patreon.com slash dark hell podcast to see what level might be up your alley of interest there's a new patreon level and it only costs one dollar you can support daw in the work i do here for just one dollar a month and get yourself shouted out in an episode as well as have access to exclusive content on the patreon as a currently unemployed basic bitch, I appreciate everybody who supports. This month's calendar of exclusive Patreon content for all of the different levels is extra amounts of dark as hell. I don't want to spoil anything, but if you're looking to fill your October with extra da and extra spook, you can head on over to patreon.com slash dark as hell podcast to check it out we, I will admit, already took a deep and dark dive into the inner workings of the elevator game that was featured in the Elisa Lamb two-parter, so come check it out if you really want to scare yourself. While you're waiting for next week's episode to drop, you can find Dark as Hell on Instagram at at dark as Hell Podcast, which is all one word, and on Twitter at Dark as Hell Pod. Again, all one word. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email your comments or hashtag questions of your own over to me at dark as hell podcast at gmail.com, or you can head over to darkashellpodcast.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you back here next week. Ready to get dark as hell all over again. Yeah.